Norwich is the town where Benedict Arnold was born and raised. Uh, it's about 11 miles from, well, a little bit further than that, from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is, and where he, where Arnold then, before the war started, set up his shop. But Norwich still, it's fascinating, Eric, you would love this, the um, burial ground there, the colonial burial ground is one of the most well-preserved I've ever seen. And Benedict Arnold's mother and some of his siblings are buried there. Their gravestones are still there. So the people of Norwich, you might have seen in the New York Times a few weeks ago, New London, which is right on Long Island Sound. Right. After his treason, Arnold attacked New London and burned the town. Right. So they still have a thing in late September every year where they have people in colonial costume parade with an effigy of Benedict Arnold, and then they burn it. But they save a leg of the effigy. Get this. They save a leg and they send it up to Norwich, Arnold's hometown. And I, I went to this this year, a few weeks ago, because there was a saying that was repeated in the newspapers at the time that if Arnold is captured because of his heroism at Saratoga, where he was wounded in his leg, if Arnold is captured, we should give full military honors to his leg, but hang the rest of them from the nearest tree. Oh, so they take great. his leg to, to Norwich in a <laughs> casket, in a little leg casket, like about, you know, the size of a baseball bat every year. And they present it to the mayor. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution. Walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are delighted to have Brian Carso, a lawyer, historian. Brian has taken a special interest in the only criminal law memorialized in the Constitution, that of the act of treason. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be on the History Man podcast with you. Brian, I'll tell you what, I've had a chance to review your book, Gideon's Revolution, through the Cornell University Press, and I must say, this is a really good read. Uh, Major John Andre and General Benedict Arnold, two fascinating men in the story of our nation's birth. I tell you, it's not a dry or hampered, over, you're not overwhelmed with data you might find in a lot of the historical works that are on my bookshelf here at the house. Uh, your writing style gives a human element that keeps the reader engaged. You know, writing a good story is a divine talent, and uh, you're fortunate to have that gift, and we're fortunate and lucky to be able to read this wonderful book. So well, thank thanks, you so Eric. much for the book. I appreciate that very much. You know, I'll, I'll add that um, I, I've talked to a lot of authors of historical fiction over the years, and I always ask them, first question out of my mouth, how true to the facts do you need to stay when writing a novel? And it, it's the, you get the whole spectrum. Some authors say, well, I only use the facts to the, to the extent that it aids the story I'm telling. I came down on the other far end of the spectrum, that as a professional historian, I wanted to use every single fact that we knew. And then it's a spy mission at the center of the novel. So there's a lot that we don't know. And so I wanted to use kind of educated imagination to fill right. in those gaps and tell a story. You did a great job. Listen, I grabbed a quote from your book that maybe gives a window into your style. If you don't mind, I'd like to read that. Uh, you are indirectly... Sure indirectly describing the personality of one of your characters. And you write in the passage, the boy grabbed the hen, 
but his grasp was tentative and the hen escaped. He is too gentle, I thought. I think that's a magnificent way of indirectly describing a personality and are giving a foreshadowing of a character. And I think that goes to your writing style and how people will, will gravitate to your book because most people would just get straight to the point and just describe, oh, he was, you know, he was like this or he was too tentative or something. But you, in wonderful language, had the reader just understand exactly what they were looking at and created in their mind the personality they were reading about. I, I thought that was that was a very good job on your part. Thanks, Eric. I like that very little story about the chicken. I'm so glad you quoted that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your book and how people can get it. Well, uh, Eric, first I'll mention they can get it. It's uh, published by Cornell University Press, and you can get it certainly by just Googling Cornell University Press. Or if you go to my website, which is briancarso.com, there's a link to Cornell Press with a discount code on there that you can use. Uh, and you can certainly find it at any of the online booksellers or, or maybe at your local bookshop or certainly request it there as well. Uh, it just came out in September and I'm uh, very excited to have it out. It took me about six years to write because I did an awful lot of research reading contemporary letters and journals of people who were alive at the time and experienced all this, but also secondary sources about what was medicine like during the American Revolution or what kind of food did they serve on ships and how did you sail back and forth to London, which comes up later in the book. And these were all fascinating details that I really had to get a handle on. As you mentioned, I've been interested in Benedict Arnold for, for 30 years. When I was in law school, I started writing about the treason clause, the only criminal law in the Constitution. And then I practiced law for a number of years. And then I went on for a PhD in history where I wrote a dissertation and a subsequent legal history about treason in the early republic. And of course, if you write about treason, you need a chapter on Benedict Arnold. And while I was researching that, I found just, we just know a few details. It was a secret spy mission, but I found a little bit of information that right after Arnold had uh, betrayed West Point and George Washington, uh, Washington conceived of a plot to capture Benedict Arnold, who had fled to the British who occupied Manhattan, uh, and bring him back uh, across the Hudson to New Jersey, where he would be tried and hanged. And I thought, this is the stuff of a historical novel. So um, I've been researching it, and I traveled all over. Every place that something significant happened to Arnold, I tried to go there too, whether it was the town he grew up in or Quebec City, where he, he led with Richard Montgomery an ill-fated attempt to capture Quebec in the winter of 1775, uh, Saratoga, Ticonderoga, walk the streets of Lower Manhattan, and so on, to try to really get inside Benedict Arnold's head. The story of Benedict Arnold and John Andre, I mean, it really is deep and it gets into the weeds of, of the motivations of these people who kind of kind of started the, the revolution and, you know, the back and forth. Uh, here in the South, we had a lot of partisan warfare. You had people, the Whigs and the Tories were going back and forth with each other. And in many respects, on a on a bigger level, you see that same dynamic in the John Andre, Benedict Arnold, George Washington story. Your conversations with Andre and your description of how he went to the gallows was unbelievably poignant in, in the way you described that. Tell, tell us a little bit about 
your descriptors and why you included those those uh, those details in 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 that story. Well, thanks, Eric. One of the things about John Andre, uh, two things about him. One, back during the American Revolution, it was considered dishonorable to be a spy. That's why Nathan Hale is such an extraordinary figure because he, d- despite the possibility of of being recognized for doing this dishonorable thing, much less being executed for it, he still had the moral courage to go and do what needed to be done. So it was dishonorable honorable to be a spy. And as, as my character says in, in the book, uh, you know, there's no upside to it. You know, if you succeed as a spy in the 17, late 1700s, nobody will ever know that what, what success you had. And if you fail, you'll be hanged from the nearest tree. So there's there's nothing to recommend it. And Andre was a spy for the British. He went up to just outside of West Point, where Benedict Arnold was the commandant, to uh, work out the turning over of this critical place, uh, this critical location on the Hudson River, which was the super highway of the time. And if you controlled the Hudson River, you controlled a lot of the the logistics and so forth of how soldiers and food and commerce moved around. It would have been a devastating blow. Thing about Andre, too, is that, and I, I talk about this in the book, everybody aspired to be like Andre. Alexander Hamilton wanted to be like Andre. Benjamin Talmadge wanted to be like Andre. Keep in mind, George Washington, when he was young, aspired to be an officer in the, you know, serving the British before the tensions really escalated. People admired this highly educated, honorable British soldier. So when you say they admired John Andre, are you talking about the British soldier part of John Andre, they or, or they knew him intimately. What do you mean by that? Kind of both, um, okay. because he was an officer, and I'll, I'll illustrate that in a moment too. There was this deep respect for other officers, even if they were on the other side. But he was what we might call an officer and a gentleman, right? He was of a high social class, uh, very well educated, a very sympathetic figure, such that there was great hesitation to hanging Andre, to executing him for espionage. Uh, It's been speculated that Washington does that in part because of what was done to Nathan Hale. But subsequently, a literature develops throughout the 1800s that romanticizes John Andre. The people would come up from New York City to go to Tarrytown or to go over to the the location where he was hanged, which you can still go to and see a a little monument to the hill where Andre was hanged. Uh, And they would picnic there. Ladies would picnic there and they sort of swoon about this romantic figure of John Andre, this poetic young man, officer, gentleman who gave his life for the cause, even though it was the other side of the war. There's a part in your book that uh, Wheatley, your main character uh, yeah. in the book, of course, he, he sees Andre go to the gallows. And then later on, he is sent on this mission to go after Arnold. And he, he finally finds Arnold, right? And he has a long conversation with Arnold. Uh, and it's a moment in your book where Arnold and Wheatley are sitting talking over a glass of wine, and Arnold states something to the effect of, there is no virtue in this revolution. It's chaos. 
Only the licentious will truly benefit. We are trading one kind of tyranny for another. Now, your your word licentious maybe will go over uh, a lot of people's head and, and they will have to do a deeper dive into what that actually meant. But my understanding of licentious means immoral. Is that what you were trying to get get in that? That was certainly Arnold's argument. He had to justify his treason. But we have to take that with a grain of salt. One of the fascinating questions about Benedict Arnold is he was our best battlefield general. I mean, at Saratoga, for instance, Horatio Gates, kind of one of the heroes of Saratoga, he hung out in a, in a, in a log cabin and wrote orders and sent them around. Arnold, on the other hand, was literally on his horse, waving his sword, charging across the battlefield, leading his troops. That's the kind of officer that Arnold was. And he had the deepest respect and admiration of his of the men under him. There's a story that I got out of a, a journal, a contemporary journal that I include in here, that when Arnold was leading soldiers up to Quebec. And it was a, a horrible, horrible march. It was in November uh, through the backwoods of, of Maine and then into Canada. And uh, it was cold. The soldiers were hungry. Smallpox afflicted some of them. And one of the soldiers, they finally find a, a butcher and the butcher gives them beef and they cook the beef and they've, they've been literally starving. And one of the soldiers eats a little bit too much. His stomach had shrunk and he couldn't march anymore. And, and he was hunched over on the side of the road. Uh, all of the soldiers had advanced beyond him and up comes then Colonel Arnold. And the soldiers expecting Arnold to chastise him, to punish him um, for not keeping up with the march. But instead, Arnold gets off his horse, takes the, the ill soldier to a farmhouse and pays the farmer uh, silver coins to take care of the soldier till he's better and can march back. And this soldier wrote, you know, I would do anything for Benedict Arnold because that was not the treatment I expected. So he had this enormous esteem. He was our best battlefield general. He will say later, right, that he disagreed with the French becoming part of being allied with the Americans uh, he'll make all these arguments that, that you cited that we have him talk about to Wheatley on, during that dinner. But it, it rings kind of untrue. Other people, Arnold suffered some indignities, certainly. He wasn't promoted the way he should have been. Uh, he was accused when he was military governor of Philadelphia while he was recuperating after Saratoga of commingling his money with other monies and so forth. This happened to a lot of people. The politics at the time were very difficult. But other people didn't then commit treason. They didn't do what Arnold did. So what was it about Arnold's character that made him uh, betray uh, this cause for which he had been their best general? Uh, it's a fascinating problem. And it's a problem I try to work out here. The two great tensions in the book that I wrote are this idea of having to be a spy when nobody really wants to be a spy? What do you do as a spy? And, and in Wheatley's case, he's somebody who gets to know Arnold as a hero and then is charged because he knows Arnold to be one of the guys who gets to capture Arnold. You, gotta, you know him best, go capture him so that he can be hanged. That's certainly a tension. 
but then the other great tension is just trying to get inside Benedict Arnold's head and figure out why did our best battlefield general turn and uh, commit treason uh, like he did. Is Wheatley a fictitious character or an actual character, actual person? Wheatley is fictitious. I needed to, and he's, he's based again on all these various period journals and so forth. But I needed a character that could tie all of Arnold's life together, that could be there at Saratoga, be in the hospital with Arnold as he's recuperating, participate in the spy mission to capture Arnold, but then grapple with this idea of revenge later on, right. too. Let me ask you this. Uh, after going through all this and your, your three decades of, of studying a lot of this, the Revolutionary War, can you put it in terms of morality? The British, were they more moral or the Americans more moral? Benedict Arnold brings up this uh, immoral aspect in his, in his uh, you know, kind of his defense of his actions type of thing. Tell me in your mind, who was more moral in the, in the, in the idea of the revolution? You know, Eric, it's a great question. Um, when I, certainly when I teach the American Revolution to my college students, I, uh, I, I start back in 1607 with Jamestown or 1620, the uh, Mayflower Compact, uh, right? So 150 years before anybody's thinking about declaring independence. Uh, and the Mayflower Compact, right out of the gate, says, we, you know, this is, and this is what the, the pilgrims uh, on, the, on the Mayflower and the several other ships as they're coming to America, they come up with this agreement amongst themselves. And they, they start out by saying, we emphasize that we are loyal subjects of the king. And they go on and on and on with all this boilerplate about how loyal they are to the king. And then they essentially say, but we're going to form our own government and our own society and be governed by the rules that we make. So right out of the gate in 1620, because the reality of the situation is they are at best a 45-day ocean crossing from anybody who's going to tell them what to do, right? So you have to, if you're, you know, it's not like today where you've got phone and fax and internet and all that stuff. You know, you're a month and a half away from Britain, you're going to set up your own society. And over those 150 years, what I like to do with my students is trace how British North America, the, the, the residents, the people like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and so forth, develop a mindset that we are independent, that independence doesn't just spring up overnight. It's, it's a long, slow process of thinking of yourself as being different enough to declare independence. And so the, the question of morality, I mean, on the one hand, right, you have the British fighting for empire. They had fought this great seven years war that what we in the States call the French and Indian war to keep control of North America. And they defeat the French. And that that's their mindset to keep control of this colonial empire. But over 150 years, the people living in British North America had developed other ideas slowly uh, where that developed a different sense of identity. So, you know, you've you really got these two forces that are just coming into conflict. That's it's when you think about it in that long scope, it's almost natural that they would. What kind of law did you study? I had 
done work, a master's degree in American history before I went to law school. So I did a lot of legal history. And then I practiced at a big New York firm for four years. And then I decided, well, I want to be a professor and study more history and mix law. And so I, I teach now at a college, Misericordia University in Northeast Pennsylvania. And I'm really fortunate because I get to teach law to undergraduates, constitutional law and so forth, great trials and things like that. And I get to teach uh, history and I get to commingle law and history whenever I can as well. So that's, that's what kind of brought me. It was that early interest in the idea and the law of treason that got me into um, right. Benedict Arnold. Our Constitution, you talked a little bit about the Mayflower Pact and stuff, but it's certainly our ideas of freedom and our Constitution. I was reading uh, Henry Kissinger, I believe, was the one who, who talked a little bit about this. And I'm not a big fan of Henry Kissinger, but he certainly was a, a an intellectual. He talked about the roots of our Constitution really starts back uh, to the Westphalian Compact. Is, is that correct? Uh, and Different some of pieces the, uh, go way back. I mean, the treason clause, for instance, is two sentences. Right. One defines treason, the first sentence, and the second defines the evidentiary standard. What kind of evidence? Two witnesses to the same overt act. The the definition of treason comes from a statute. I believe it was from 1352, basically the mid 1300s uh, English statute. So it was 400 years old when it was adopted and, and sort of plugged into the United States Constitution in 1789. And the evidentiary standard was over 100 years old. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, people, uh, the, the framers of the Constitution were taking these various pieces that they were familiar with through studying law and history and saying, what will work for our republic? What, what you know, right? to some extent, we can cut and paste, and we're also going to come up with some new stuff that right. fit our particular circumstances. Well, in that vein, what does liberty mean to you? To me, liberty is a contract. It's a bargained for exchange that says we will be good people so that we can be free people. And in, in turn, flip that around, our government will make us free people. And in return, we will be good people. And when I say good, I mean virtuous, displaying civic virtue and democratic habits. You know, we, we see it in the world if you know, our freedoms get taken away when there are, for instance, national after 9-11, right? We were particularly nervous. And, and so people were, were giving up some of our freedoms in favor of more national security. So if we want more freedom, we need a group of citizens who feel safe and secure because they know that they can reach consensus, that they know how to reach compromise. Um, again, these civic virtues and democratic habits, civic virtues are those behaviors and habits that make self-government possible. And part of that is an agreement that we will come up with a set of rules and abide by those rules. And that's where the, the Benedict Arnold story throughout American history has been told and retold. In 1857, four years before the American Civil War, uh, Washington Irving, the great, the, the first really internationally famous American author who wrote the, the legend of Sleepy Hollow and about Rip Van Winkle and so forth. Well, Washington Irving, late in his life, wrote A Life of George Washington. And the largest chapter is 60 pages about the episode with Benedict Arnold. 
And Washington Irving said that he wrote this book to remind Americans about the promise of America and the promise of self-government. And that with all the sectional tensions of the time, that we want to make sure we don't betray that. We in 1857, we in 1860, 1865, don't betray the promise of a democratic self-government because of our own kind of sectional tensions and self-interests. And Arnold's story, I think, I think it's relevant today, too, for all the political tensions that we feel today. It is a good thing to remind us about issues of loyalty, loyalty to the system of government, to a democratic republic. That is what we are loyal to, not, not to any person or, or, or ideology, but loyal to this system that allows us the greatest amount of liberty. Brian, thank you so much for sitting down with us. The name of the book is Gideon's Revolution by Brian Carso. Tell us again how we can get your book, Brian. Sure, Eric. Um, it's published by Cornell University Press. You can Google Cornell University Press and um, order it directly from there. Or if you go to my website, briancarso.com, there's a link to the Cornell site right there, along with a discount code. And on that website, too, there's a lot of additional information about Benedict Arnold, about the plot to capture him, some blogs that I've written, and so forth. And, and one thing that Eric and I, we did not get into is answer that, try to answer that question of why did Benedict, what was it about Benedict Arnold's character that enabled him to do this thing, this treasonous thing that nobody else did? And uh, to find the answer to that, read the book. There you go. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>